reading of the word. Which uh, comes again from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself, yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. You may be seated. Before I get into this, <laughs> I'm laughing to myself this morning because back in the early New Covenant days, that was a church that Amanda and I were with when we first got married. We were always nervous when the preacher's wife and family didn't come because usually we got one of them messages that we weren't doing enough or that we weren't. Uh, that's true. <laughs> um, so I don't, so we're reading this this morning, and they're like, oh, his family's not here. I bet he's going to that's not, that's not what's going on here this morning. Um, anyway, just so you know, Lily's got a little bit of a scratchy throat. John was coughing. So any symptoms? And, and let's just, let me just, if you got symptoms or you live with somebody that's got symptoms, just stay home. That, that's just where we're at right now. Um, I wish it was different, but it's not. So anyway, there's that. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to say a name, and I, 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 I'm curious. Now, I want a show of hands, and I very rarely ask for a show of hands, okay? How many of you know the name, if you know the name or are familiar with the name, raise your hand, Jimmy Swaggart? That's a little more. Uh, Judah knows him. <laughs> Jimmy Swaggart, so when, when I was growing up um, in the 80s, uh, we had stopped going to church because Dad was working on Sundays and other things that I found out later. Well, surprise. Um, but our our church was watching Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, he was a televangelist um, in probably the purest sense of the term and uh, would play the piano. Uh, he was cousins with Mickey Gilley and Jerry Lee Lewis, by the way, and they all played the piano. And he could play, he could sing. And my dad just really enjoyed watching Jimmy Swaggart. And he was kind of a, a hero to me because he was a preacher and he was on TV and all this stuff. Well, if you don't know, Jimmy Swaggart fell into blatant sin. Um, you can look it up. And he's kind of the poster boy for uh, weeping tears and I've sinned and I'm sorry, please forgive me kind of deal. Well, that really, really, really affected me as a kid because this guy who 
in my performance-based religion mentality, well, he was the top of the heap, right? He was the best of the best. He was the model and the example for us and for him to... And I didn't understand everything that was going on, obviously, when I was that young. Um, But it really, really, really bothered me because when your religious heroes, leaders, um, fall... Man, that's hard to take. That's really tough to, to wrestle with. And, and I, I would guess most, I won't ask for a show of hands here, but I would guess that most of us sitting in this room this morning have experienced something like that. Uh, somebody that you really looked up to and something happened and they sinned or they deconstructed or whatever. And man, it's really disillusioning. It's really hard to process. Because unfortunately, and I don't think we should, We put our faith in men so many times, and we do have religious heroes, and we do have people that we think are bulletproof, and listen, ain't none of us bulletproof. We've all got feet of clay, we're all sinners, and we're all apt and prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So today, we're going to be talking about really what this whole letter of 1 Timothy is about. And as we work through this book, and we're almost done, truthfully. We've got chapter 6 left. And as we come to this passage, we're dealing again with elders. We're dealing again, and we've dealt with elders back in chapter 3. And really this whole letter is primarily about church leadership and how that's supposed to be set up, how, how it's supposed to be handled. Paul is correcting Leadership deficiencies in Ephesus where he's left Timothy. And um, there's been some really hard word in First Timothy. Because in the same way that we revere and set people on spiritual pedestals, the scripture is very, very, very clear that those who teach are held to a different standard. Now, grace is grace, but James was clear, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. That's scripture. So, as we go into today, what we're going to look at primarily is, we've seen how elders are supposed to serve the church. Today, we're going to look at how the church is supposed to serve elders. Okay? So again, we've been through, uh, just real quick recap, Uh, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy whom Paul had left in Ephesus to help correct some of these deficiencies and to set things in order, especially amongst the leadership. And we've looked at uh, a lot of different things here. Uh, We've looked at different roles of elders, deacons, even widows, and how the church should serve widows. And so today as we start into this section... In verse 17, this is going to be quite an interesting shift. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there, there is a clear shift here in the letter away from widows. We didn't get to meet last week, but the last time we were together, we looked at the passage previous, uh, right before this, that talked about widows and their families. And, and now we're focusing on elders, And we've already dealt with elders and deacons back in chapter 3. So we know what kind of men these elders should be. 
And we've also seen from other earlier passages that some of the elders in Ephesus had strayed from what they were supposed to be doing, uh, strayed away from what they were supposed to be teaching as well. So Paul here is going to give instruction on how the church is to treat elders, how to handle them, so to speak. The elders have roles in the church, and the church has roles to the elders. It's a two-way street, just like everything in the church. And we saw that with widows, and that Paul laid out the church's responsibility to care for widows, and then the widow's family's role for the widows, and the role of some widows in serving the church. And we don't like cliques, and we don't like separations, but there are groups of people groupings of people in the church. There are widows, families, there are singles, there are elders, there are deacons, and we could go on and on. And the main thing that we need to see here is that it's not about a hierarchy or a pyramid of power and subservience. Rather, it is mutual submission and service to one another within the body. And here's the big deal, helping each other fulfill the roles that we each occupy. So with elders, elders have roles in serving the church and the church has roles in serving the elders. So let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And there's a lot in just that verse there. Every mention of church leadership structures in the New Testament has elders at the fore. And let me note something really quickly there. While they do mention an elder here or there, the mention of the leadership structure is always elders in plurality. Always. And this in and of itself would save a lot of heartache. Because when we elevate one man, when we elevate one person and expect him to do everything and expect him to be the role model that everybody looks up to, that is bound for failure. Plurality of elders. And that's the way the New Testament is clearly shown to have the church set up. The word is presbyteros and can be translated as elder, overseer, or bishop. The role and the office is the same for those three words. And we saw in chapter 3 that these men are to, be, are to lead and serve with honor and integrity, being a blessing and an example to the body by their conduct and, and their adherence to the pure doctrine as laid out by Jesus and his apostles, the apostolic teaching about the life, ministry, and work of Christ. So now the question is, how should the body relate back to these men? Well, first we see it's by honoring them. And we saw two weeks ago when we talked about elders that when Paul was referring to honoring widows, it wasn't just holding them in high esteem. That's not just what the word means. The word here for honor for elders is the noun form of the verb that we saw with widows. The word is time. We would translate it T-I-M-E. It looks like time, but it's time. And the literal meaning of the word time is compensation. It holds in it the thought of deference and reverence for sure, but also in the definition are words like price, sum, valuation. So this passage is not just saying to have a high or favorable opinion of these elders, but also to let the ones who rule well be considered worthy of compensation, pay, valuation. And not just compensation, but those ruling well, which implies sometimes that some don't, 
Those ruling well are to be considered worthy of what? Double honor, double reverence, and double compensation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. Let the church serve the ruling elders who fulfill their role well by compensating them in a double measure. Is there a specific number for that? No. But the thought of a double portion means that the church sees their service, places a value on it, and says, we're going to do even more than that. We're going to double it. If the valuation of an elder is five bucks, then they see those ruling well and say, we're going to give them ten bucks. Why? Well, we'll get more than that in just a couple of minutes. But here we'll just say that they see that this elder, these elders are worth it. And they want to serve him or them that way. Especially, Paul says at the end of the verse, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now we saw back in chapter 3 that all elders are to be able to teach. And that means if someone needs guidance or counsel, the elders, all of them, go back to the scriptures and can say and then help those people that need the help understand what in those scriptures applies to their lives at that time. That's teaching. And all of these elders should be able to systematically explain what the Bible says and teaches. But from this clause here at the end, it seems that some are specifically laboring in teaching and preaching. And that word labor is an interesting word. Kopiao. And look at it, 16 times, to bestow labor, to toil, be weary, to grow weary, tired, exhausted, to labor with wearisome effort of bodily labor. So this is not saying that some make it their hobby or their occupation to teach or preach, but that they grow weary and exhausted from the effort that they put into it. To labor with wearisome effort. And these elders are especially worthy of double honor. And that word especially means chiefly, primarily. All who serve well deserve double honor, but chiefly those who exhaust themselves in preaching and teaching. Okay, so why? Verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. We ask why these people are Uh, worthy of double honor. And the verse, this next verse starts with for, because. And I love this. Why are they worthy of double honor? For the scripture says. Paul is basing his instructions not on market trends or business models, but on the very words of God himself. Double compensation because the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now that's a direct quote of Deuteronomy 25.4. Look, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. So that's direct quote, right? In the law, in the Pentateuch, in the original five books that were handed down as the law of God, God said that if you're working an ox, using it and treading out the grain means they walked on the grain, and that walking on the grain would break open the shell, the husk, and the kernel would be uh, released from the husk, and the husk, the chaff would blow away while the kernel remained, and they would use oxen to tread on that grain to get those kernels out and to get the chaff away. So God is saying in the law that if you're using an ox or some oxen to do this work, then let that ox eat some of what it's engaging in. You don't keep from it 
that which can help it and nourish it just to benefit yourself. You don't tie your ox up and say, all right, tread out the grain, and then say, by the way, you can't eat my grain, you big ox. No. It should be, logically, if the ox is good and healthy and strong, it can do more work for me, better work for me, and I'll have more. Paul expands on this in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to 12. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more, he says to the Corinthians. Paul explains that what God was talking about in the law is as much for us as it was for Israeli oxen. Actually, that it really was about and for us, not the oxen. God is teaching a lesson by using their everyday practices. You don't want your ox starving to death while he's wading in the food that would nourish him. In the same way, you don't want the men who labor intensively to bring you God's word impoverished and destitute when you could reward them and help them to thrive while they do it. And I think there is a shameful expectation in the church world and in the non-church world that the, quote, men of God should learn contentment in their material situation as an example for others. Drive your 1981 Toyota Tercel and be glad you got it. Nothing wrong with the 1981 Toyota yourself. You can go out and run and praise God for that. But I think we try to foist on people who preach and teach. And again, I'm not talking about myself. I've got plenty. But we think, oh, it's good for them to struggle a little bit. It's good for them. It's our expectation. And I think that's shameful. And I think Paul is saying here, that's shameful. That's like muzzling an ox. Now, in fairness... There's also an embarrassing opposite end of the pole where prosperity preachers flaunt their wealth and call it the fruit from the seed that you've sown in their financial lives. That's awful. And the Bible speaks to that as well in scathing terms. But here, support these men and help them to be able to live and thrive as they exhaust themselves to bless you with the Word of God. So he says, as the scripture says, that's from Deuteronomy. But Paul quotes one more example from scripture. He says, and the laborer, let me go back to that. The laborer eh, is, deserves his wages. Now, where's that from? Anybody know? I didn't until I got into this. It's actually a direct quote from, get this, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and the teachings of Jesus. Now watch this. We know that Luke wrote the third gospel in our New Testament, but at the time of Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, there wasn't a completed canon. All the New Testament books weren't gathered and put into, into the Scripture. But in this, listen, Paul is calling Luke's gospel Scripture. Paul is saying that Luke's account of Jesus' life is God-breathed. Paul knew and traveled with Luke extensively, and he's saying here that what Luke has gathered in all of his research is literally God's revelation to us about who Jesus is and what he did and taught. And in that body of work, Jesus says to his disciples that he is sending them out 
And that if they find a house in a town where someone will support them and help them, then they should stay there the whole time because the work they are doing is worthy of that support. They deserve the support they are getting for the work they are doing. The laborer deserves his wages. So it is with those elders who rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching because God tells us in his word, Old and New Testament. Next, Paul turns to another way the church is supposed to relate to and serve elders. Look at 19. Now that we're going to get sticky here, y'all. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How else can the church serve in their role to help and bless elders fulfill their role? Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now we saw back in chapter 3 that these men are to be above reproach. Their reputation, even with those outside of the church, is to be exquisite. Well, imagine an elder is ruling well, loving God, loving and serving his family, loving and serving the church well, And the enemy sees this. Because we do have an enemy, Satan. He starts thinking, hmm, how can I push back against this gospel goodness that I see in this man's life? I'll besmirch his goodness. So somebody says, everybody thinks old Bob is just the best guy. But he isn't honest in his dealings with CEF. I've heard he's taken money from him. And you may say, why would somebody say that? Well, people are people, first of all. And believers and unbelievers can both say some pretty mean things, right? Or rumors get started when somebody mishears that Bob was entrusted with making a deposit and it got there a day late because of the weather. It was Bob. It's definitely Bob. That's why I use Bob as the example because I know it would never be you. (laughs) There could be a lot of things that... that, Maybe somebody mishears, and then, of course, the rumor weed grows, right? And then the story is that, you know, he's extorting money from the mob, and he's got running a drug ring and, and prints or what. I don't know. You know, it just, it just grows and grows and grows. <clears throat> so one person says Bob is a crook. How should we, as the body, respond to that? <laughs> don't admit the charge. Unless there's two or three witnesses with evidence. Not just two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses with evidence that proves this claim is true. Don't admit the charge. Admit means to receive or to take up. Charge means accusation. So when that one person says that about Bob, you say, no. I'm not going to listen to this. Not because I like Bob only. The Bible says that unless there is evidence from two or three witnesses, I'm not supposed to entertain these accusations. Now note that. Stop it, he says. Don't receive it. Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. And listen to me, not just with elders, but specifically with elders in this passage, we should be those kind of people. 
We don't listen, nor do we allow somebody to say something reckless or accusatory, especially against an elder, if they just come up to you and start talking to you, and they say, hey, guess what? There's something I know. No. If you've got a case to present and you've got two or three witnesses that have evidence, let's talk. Otherwise, shut up. And we should do that with other rumors too, with other people. We shouldn't be those who enter. Oh, really? I'm going to look into that. I'll pray about it. Don't be those kind of people. Don't admit the charge. We don't listen to it. We don't allow it. Don't be nice and just hear someone out. Don't do it. Tell them to produce witnesses with evidence. Two or three witnesses with evidence. Not just one more. And this is clear in the standard, uh, the clear standard in the Old Testament law, and you can see that in Deuteronomy 19, and in the teaching of Jesus on church discipline in Matthew 18. And we'll look at that later, by the way. The concept of two or three witnesses. I saw it, I know it, and here's the evidence I have. And so, the church can serve their elders by adhering to this strictly. Don't listen to it. End it unless there are two or three witnesses with evidence. Now, what if there are two or three witnesses with evidence? What if an elder is wronging others or is sinning and it's verified by those witnesses? Well, the church then serves the elders by holding them accountable. Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. (laughs) So we find out that Bob literally is siphoning funds from CEF. And I didn't consult with Bob in using him as an example. And that's ludicrous to even say, by the way. That's why he's an elder. But anyway. Right, right. (laughs) So, so, so we find out that Bob is, there's, there's documents and there's video and it's proven and affirmed by the original accuser and the evidence of two or three others. And Bob's like, well, it's not really stealing. It's what I deserve. Well, if he persists in his sin, the church is to rebuke him. That word is el, el inco, ginkgo biloba or... Elinko, 17 times in the New Testament, translates as reprove, rebuke, convince, tell one's fault, convict. To convict, refute, confute, generally with a suggestion of shame of the person convicted. By conviction, to bring to the light, to expose, to find fault with, correct, to reprehend severely, chide, admonish, reprove, to call to account, show one his fault, demand an explanation, to chasten or to punish. So then we bring it before the church publicly in the presence of all. And this is a church matter, okay? This is not a court of law matter. Let the civil court handle the civil court. We deal with things in the church in the church. That gets sticky too. Okay? So we bring it before the church. We stand Bob up here. And here this elder is clearly shown as persisting in sin. Keep that in mind. And the church is to publicly call him to account, show him his fault. And, this doesn't say this, but I think it's implicit here, he's not an elder anymore. So that the rest may stand in fear. So that me and Don look on and go, ooh, yikes. They're not playing. This is not a public hand slap. This is a decommissioning. An unseating 
in order that everyone looking on will be afraid of the consequences they could receive if they too are brought before the presence of all. It's public confrontation. And if elders are to be held in double honor, they're to be also held in double accountability. And something like that was said in one of the messages I listened to, and I can't remember who it was to cite it, and I'm sorry about that. I should be able to cite who said that, but I wrote it down and I didn't tag it who it was. So if elders are held in double honor, they are also to be held in double accountability. Like we said earlier, let not many of you become teachers. And this may seem harsh or mean in our days of affirmation and acceptance, but this is a non-negotiable. Don, Bob, and myself are to be held publicly accountable if we persist in sin that we are verified to be committing by the testimony and evidence of two or three witnesses. Guess what Jimmy Swaggart's doing today? He's preaching on TV. These things ought not be this way, brothers. He's lost his public testimony. He's lost his public platform. And now he's just smearing the name, in my, in my opinion. Is he able to teach? Yep. Can he still play the piano and sing? You bet he can. But he's lost his platform, or should have lost his platform, because there was open, clearly evident, blatant sin in his life. That was unchecked because he was one man running a ministry, by the way. So there's double accountability. And that may seem harsh, but that's the way it is. Too many times in our day, something is found out about a church leader and they sneak out the back door so as not to have a negative effect on the faith of those who may be following them. The thought pattern in the passage is that the man is removed from his position and then is incorporated into the congregation... And learns to operate in the body in a way that is showing repentance and sorrow. He will not be an elder again. But he also won't be cast out if he changes his behavior and attitude. He's restored to fellowship at his repentance. And that's always the goal of church discipline. It's restoration to fellowship within the body. But not to the office he was in. He has forfeited that by persisting in his sin and needing the public admonition. And I don't see any specifier in this sin, that it's a certain type of sin. If an elder is persisting in sin and has to be called to the carpet on it and has to be publicly rebuked, his elder days are done. Hopefully he repents and is a functional part of the body and is restored in that, but his sin or sins have disqualified him from shepherding. Now listen, I sin every day, Don sins every day, Bob sins every day. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a sin that was brought before him with the evidence of two or three witnesses and we say, nah, I'm good. You've lost your platform at that point. And hopefully you repent and are restored to fellowship with the body but not in the office that you were in. And again, we might say, well, that's just sexual sin. It doesn't say that here. It's persisting in any sin that you've been publicly called to account on and need to repent of. You're like, dang, that's tough. Yes, it's tough. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. Listen, hopefully y'all know this. Fear is a very efficient motivator. It's a great deterrent to potential wrong behavior. There are a lot of things I did do growing up that I shouldn't have done. 
And there are more things that I didn't do because I was scared to death I was going to get my hind end busted if I got caught doing them. And I'll tell you all right now, I fear this public discipline. And it helps keep me in line. It helps me make decisions to say, nah, I'm not going to do that. Because I don't want to lose this platform. I don't want to lose my role. I don't want to lose my testimony. And I'm afraid of this kind of discipline. Rightly so. And it helps keep me in line. The fear of the Lord is not just respecting God. I've heard that all my life. It means we, that we're not supposed to be afraid of God. We're supposed to just respect Him. Horseradish. That's crazy talk. Part, the, the biggest part of the fear of the Lord is dreading His disciplining, omnipotent hand. David said, when I kept silent about my sin, your hand was heavy upon me. My bones ached within me. I was crushed. That's the disciplining hand of God, and it scares me to death. And it scares me into obedience. You say, well, we shouldn't be scared into obedience. Yes, we should. We absolutely should. There's nothing wrong with that. That's scriptural. Again, and I hope my kids have grown up with the fear of the hand. Now, I'm not going to smack them in the mouth or beat them, but I will bend them over and spank their hind ends. I'm going to go to jail now. Great. And you could talk to any of the four of them, and they'll tell you how severe that's been growing up, right? Hopefully that's sparse, and hopefully we never get to that point. And hopefully it's two or three spanks on the hiney, and then don't do that again. And I want you to learn consequences this way so that you don't have to learn consequences that way as you persist in your sin. And that's exactly what we're talking about right here. It helps keep the elders in line. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the disciplining hand of His church. So don't do the deed and you won't face the discipline. That applies to elders even more so than other members of the body. And just in case you think this is up for debate, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, Doing nothing from partiality. Wow. (laughs) I think if nothing else, this verse shows how serious these instructions are, right? Coming out of these instructions about elders and how to honor them and hold them accountable, Paul appeals to the authority of God himself and Christ Jesus himself and the elect angels to charge Timothy to keep these rules. And we don't like the word rules, do we? But these are rules. Paul says basically, Timothy, I'm telling you these things and I call God as my witness as to the immense importance of adhering to what I'm saying here. And don't get too caught up in the elect angels thing. I wouldn't want to speak as this obviously means this kind of tone. But I think it just means the angels who didn't fall with Satan. The angels. The the, the main idea is that Paul is calling Timothy to the very throne room of heaven, to the eternal throne in front of the Father, in front of the Son, and every angel there to implore Timothy to make sure these rules are kept. It's that important. And also to keep them without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. There's no room for liking some elders more or less than others. And all of these issues are to be addressed as matters of sin or righteousness, not whether I like him or not. 
Honor those elders who are worthy of the honor and hold accountable those who need to be held accountable. No partiality or prejudging either way for or against. And Timothy is there in Ephesus to literally call the elders of that church to a biblical, godly model of leadership and service. It's not a popularity contest. It's not a competition to curry favor with people or to promote himself to them so that he can move on to a bigger and better church. And it's a matter of first importance, Paul says, to God and to his church. Be careful who you appoint to these offices and be careful how they conduct themselves. God says so. And that thought continues in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself early Old Testament. It was meant to be a sign of passing on either a blessing or the conferring of authority. When Moses was about to die, God told him to publicly pass his authority on to Joshua. Numbers 27. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So in this discussion about elders, Paul tells Timothy to not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty to appoint someone as an elder. Don't be hasty to confer authority to somebody. Caution and purposeful time can help prevent a lot of the problems that come with elders who disobey or those who sin without repenting. And again, y'all have heard me say this before, and I'm guilty of it myself, and my ministry, whatever that means, at the very beginning, this was a mistake that was made with me and by me. We are so quick in our culture to see a speaking gift or a glimpse of charisma and elevate a person to a position of leadership. And it's wrong. It's wrong for the individual and it's wrong for the church. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it don't. So don't be hasty. Don't rush into it. Alistair Begg said, no ordination without investigation. And that's a good word. And Paul finishes this verse by saying, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. This is emphasizing that hasty ordination leads to taking part in the sins of others. You appoint an unqualified man to this position and they fall into sin. Guess who's part of this whole process? Those who appointed them. You're taking part in their sins and don't do that. Don't lay your hand on them and confer to them some of your authority that you have invested to you by somebody else laying their hands on you and saying we appoint you to share in this authority because if you do that and somebody's not the real deal and they fall, you're part of the process. Those who appointed them are taking part in their sins. So don't do that. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure by not elevating people to leadership positions who end up falling or diving into their sin. And then watch this quick aside that relates to this thought in the next verse. Verse 23. This seems like it's not related, but the Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes. Right? So there's parentheses here. Those aren't inspired. There were no parentheses in the original document. But he, he jumps over and he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now what's this about? It would seem 
from what he says here, that Timothy had been drinking water exclusively. And it would seem that he was doing that to avoid any appearances of partaking in alcohol that would be received wrongly. Maybe people there in Ephesus were known for over-drinking. I know that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So maybe this is an ongoing issue in Ephesus. So Timothy comes in as an outsider, not from there, and he's working to be an example to them. So maybe he's not drinking any alcohol to show that alcohol isn't a necessity for God's people. We, we cannot do that if we want to. Maybe he's trying to be... Uh, so Jesus said, for their sake I sanctify myself. Jesus could have done a lot of things he didn't do, but he chose not to do them so that he could be an example for those who are following him. Because they couldn't do those things without sin. Jesus could. So Timothy comes in and he's not drinking wine. And I would guess it's an example thing. So as, as Paul is talking here about uh, elders and examples and sins, Paul releases Timothy from this expectation that he wouldn't drink any wine. And he says, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now that's not your day-to-day anxieties and disgust with the world, by the way. And there's surely some medicinal benefits of some alcohol. So Paul says to tap in, worry about the extreme example that you're trying to set. Take a little wine. It will help with your stomach and your frequent ailments. And we know that Timothy has been described as timid. Also, obviously, he had frequent ailments. He was sickly. He was sick a lot. And Paul says, in a conversation about elders, be an example to the flock. Don't sweat that alcohol. Take a little bit. Do it to help yourself. I know you've been abstaining, but use some to help your body. That's okay. That's not ruining your testimony. And then he gets back to the main thought in verse 24. And this is so powerful. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. (laughs) Anybody listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Yeah. Some of these sins appear later, don't they? So Paul had been talking about not laying on hands too quickly to keep from participating in the sins of other people. Now he comes back to those sins. And he says that the sins of some people are conspicuous. That means that some people don't hide their sins too much. It's obvious. It's conspicuous. It's hard to hide arrogance. It's hard to hide greed. It's hard to hide somebody who's overly aggressive with the opposite sex. And again, we're prone to just overlook someone's flaws... If we think they may help our congregation, right? Oh yeah, he's a little overbearing. But he brings a lot to the table that can help us. And the answer to that is wrong. No. His sin is conspicuous. Don't even think about appointing him to a position of leadership. Get him within the body. Find somebody to disciple him and beat the hell out of him. But don't put him in a position of leadership. That's crazy. And we do it all the time. Their sin's conspicuous. Don't fast track them into leadership. And those sins go before these types of people to judgment. Their sin leads them into judgment. So those are the ones who it's conspicuous. But watch this. 
but the sins of others appear later. Thank you, Siri. Now, this is tough. The sins of others appear later. I should have let that go and see what's about the sins coming later. Maybe somebody slithers in and they look and they sound and they feel good. It's right. Everything is right. All the boxes are checked. They say the right things. They push the right buttons. They speak and they lead and they serve like a champ. But they're snakes. They're wolves. And it's later, after they're entrenched and have led many astray, that their sins come to light. And that happens a lot. So Paul's warning Timothy, sometimes it's easy to see. And sometimes it's going to come back to bite you because you didn't see it and it's too late. Know that that's going to happen, Timothy. Run from the ones whose sins are conspicuous. And when the other ones come in and they're, they're doing everything right and their sin comes out later, watch out. But here's the deal. Their sins will come to light. It's going to happen. So watch, Timothy. Don't let the obvious ones in and watch for the ones that might come out later. But I promise you this, Paul says to Timothy, sin and sins will come to light. It will happen. Maybe I've been saying the right things, doing the right things for eight years now. And maybe I'm living a secret life. I'm not. I'm pretty boring, actually. But I'm doing all this to manipulate and I'm trying to get my foot in and I come in and I start preaching about money so that y'all pay me more. It comes out later. And it will. Be certain, the scripture says, that your sins will find you out. And listen, the damage that comes from this type of stuff is awful. It's lifelong damage for some people. I mentioned New Covenant earlier. New Covenant blew apart in about 2000. It still existed, and it still exists today in a different name, obviously. I say obviously, obviously to me. Y'all don't know anything about that. But I can promise you there are people who, if I went up to them today 21 years later, 22 years later, and started talking about those days, they would talk about how much they're hurt from that today. So Paul is telling Timothy, watch out, because these things are going to happen, unfortunately, but they will be found out, and you have to be the one who you have to be the one who equips these leaders to not be those people and then to work through it when it does happen. Don't let the obvious ones in. Watch for the ones that may come out later. Beware, church. Watch out for the sins of others. But thank goodness it's not just sins. Verse 25, our last verse. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. I love this. Sins will come out and they will be conspicuous. But so will good works. Watch, Timothy. Keep an eye out. If someone is given to good works, if someone is doing good works, you're going to see it. Even if they try to do them secretly, you're going to know quality men by their works. Sounds like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now I didn't know Jimmy Swagger. I saw a persona. Was he doing good works? I don't know. I know he was sinning. And it becomes evident. Look at their fruit, Timothy. Look at their fruit, church. Is it wolf fruit? Or is it sheep slash shepherd fruit? Look at their works. Those doing good works are going to be the men you want to work with and have leading the people of God. And I would say that those works take place over a long period of time. Not just a good work here. Up front, we're like, yep, this is the guy. He's good. Watch for the fruit. Watch for the works. Fruit comes in seasons. Okay, so that's a lot. Lots to chew on, lots to digest. And it seems the best question to ask is, how can the church serve their elders from this passage? So we're going to look at application through three A's. Aid, accountability, and actions. Aid, A-I-D, accountability, I'll give you a little bit to write that down if you're writing it down, accountability, and actions, A-A-A. First application point is aid. Honor the elders that serve well, and that word honor means pay them. Especially those who exhaust themselves in preaching and teaching. Honor them both in respect And in financial ways, that's part of the responsibility and the role of the church to help the elders do what the elders should be doing and are doing. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And again, I talk to so many miserable pastors and elders. It's a toil. It's a burden. I'm miserable. My wife is miserable. My kids are miserable because we're trying our best to serve and these people just aren't helping us at all. And that's a shame. Obey them. Submit to them. Honor them. Compensate them knowing that they are those who will have to give an account. And they should do this with joy, not with groaning, because it's not going to help you, church, if you muzzle your ox and he's starving to death while he's doing the work for you that you need done. Galatians 6.10, we've used this a hundred times in application, but then so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith and double honor to the elders who are serving and preaching and teaching. So that's aid. Second, another way that we help our elders is by accountability. Church, hold us accountable. Elders are to be held to a clear standard and they are to be openly rebuked if they don't meet that standard. Andrew was down Friday and he starts interviewing my wife. Son of a gun. How's he doing? How are things? And that's good. It's good. 
And you want to know how an elder's doing, talk to his wife. That's a real good sign. Hold us accountable. Talk to our wives. Talk to our kids. How's your dad doing? He's a jerk. Crap. <laughs> and hold us to a very, very, very high standard. And if we need corrected, not everything is stand up in front and lose your position. Sometimes like, dude, I've heard this about you, and I've talked to two or three people about it, and it seems to be consistent. Are you okay? Is there something we can do to help you here? Or, man, it looks like this is blatant sin. You need to correct that. And hopefully... We say, brother, thank you for pointing that out. And we confess our sins and we repent and don't persist in them. We are not above reproach. We are not above accountability. Quite the opposite. We are the most accountable people in this congregation. Who are we accountable to? First and foremost to God, but also to you people, to you folks. We're accountable to you. Please hold us accountable to you. And I want to just quickly read through with Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. That's if he sinned against you. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Heard that before today? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What an abused verse that is. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, seriously abused verse in the church. It's talking about accountability between those members of the church. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Here's the point. All church discipline is for the purpose of restoration. And then elders are held to an even higher level of accountability to the point that we can lose our position if we persist in our sin and don't listen to the church at large. So I'm begging you, church, hold us accountable. Because you love us. Not because you're trying to catch us doing something wrong. That's not accountability. So aid and accountability. And by the way, that whole accountability thing is true for everybody in here. It's just more so for us. Aid, accountability, and actions. Actions. Our deeds as elders should be obvious. What I teach is of utmost importance. Because this is the apostolic teaching. This is the word of God delivered to you for your nourishment, for your correction, for your rebuke, for your help, for your encouragement. But if my deeds, if Don's deeds, if Bob's deeds don't match the teachings, we're not the real deal. John MacArthur said, as soon as you're a bad elder, you're not an elder. So... How can you tell? Look at our actions. And I don't say that arrogantly. I'm saying investigate. Lift up some leaves and see if there's fruit under there. What do you know about us? What do you know about our history? What do you know about our present? What do you know about our plans into the future? And if it's not significantly Christ-focused, our deeds are going to show that. That's what Peter says as an elder. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter is saying there, elders, leaders, do it. And let your example be the deeds that you do, not just the words that you say. And again, it's not what I say that I do. It's not what I say that I do that I do. It's what I do, but what I do is what I do. I get tongue-tied there. And finally, this last verse. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, there, that's one of the scariest verses in the New Testament to me. Because I should be able to look at you guys and say, do what I'm doing. So should Don, so should Bob. Let your fruit be like our fruit. And again, I'm a man. I got feet of clay and I've got a heart that's prone to wander. And so do these guys. So give us our aid. Hold us accountable and watch our actions. And hopefully by the grace of God and the very spirit of God himself will be producing fruit that you say that's the same fruit I want to see in my life and you'll replicate our actions and our actions will be obviously God-glorifying, not self-gratifying. That's the goal. And that's how you, church, can serve us and that's how you can know that we're the real deal as you watch us do what we do, hear us teach what we teach, preach what we preach. And we love and serve each other until Jesus comes and we give an account for how we've led you. Let's pray. Father, you have not made a mistake ever. And you've not made a mistake by appointing men to lead your church. Sometimes, God, we really blow it. Sometimes snakes slither in. Wolves come into the flock for the purpose of self-gratification. God, I pray passionately that Don and Bob and myself would not be those wolves, not be those snakes who are seeking to serve themselves. But God, that we would be under shepherds emulating our great shepherd, the one who came and died for his sheep. And God, I am thankful for this group of people who it is an honor and a joy to serve. And I pray that they would know how to best fulfill their role to help us fulfill our roles. Giving us aid, holding us accountable, and watching our actions. And seeing in all of it the glory that comes to you as a result. Help us, God. Do what only you can do. Build your church and get your glory in the midst of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can.